Heavenly Father, as we come to this time to receive your word, we pray that you would show us your truth. God, we rejoice that we have written in the pages of scripture all that we need to know about you and how to have a relationship with you. And God, I ask this morning that as we read this passage and as we reflect on what has been written here, that we would come to clearly see how the church displays the mystery of the gospel. God, I ask that you would help us to be faithful with the message of the gospel, faithful to guard it against error, as well as faithful to proclaim it to those who do not know. And God, we further pray that you would help us as a church to be faithful to display the gospel as your gathered people. God, we recognize that we live in a broken and cursed world, and we live in a culture that seems to be crumbling around us. And as people are grasping for hope and grasping for answers to all of the moral evils that pervade, we pray that we would be faithful to the gospel that we would not look simply to politicians or policies as our rescue, but that instead we would look at the plan of God and your perfect providence as the only rescue that is suitable. And God, I pray that we would be people who proclaim the message of the gospel and that we, according to your plan, would be bold in sharing the gospel and you would draw others to yourself. So God, guide us this morning as we look in Ephesians and help us to come away from this passage affected by the gospel so that we can infect others with the gospel. We pray this in Christ's glorious name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, as we're in Ephesians chapter 3, we're continuing the series that Jerry has started and that Luke continued last week. And as we look into this passage this morning, we're going to see the Apostle Paul starting to intercede for the people of Ephesus when suddenly he seems to interrupt his thought. He starts here in verse number one by saying, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then he goes into a digression where he explains the mystery of the gospel. And we say this because in verse number 14, he resumes his prayer by saying, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Well, this digression or diversion or whatever you might want to call it is inspired by God because God had moved on the heart of the Apostle Paul to make clear once again to the Ephesian Christians what is the heart of the gospel. For three summers when I was in college, I traveled with a ministry called Neighborhood Bible Time. Charles Homsher was the director, the founder, and everything surrounding Bible Time. And he had a reputation among Bible college students like myself of being the boss. And we called him the boss because he was intimidating in how he carried himself and what he expected of those who would travel with Neighborhood Bible Time. And I had the privilege to work alongside the boss for three summers, and I learned so many things. At the time, he was in his late 60s, and I think on my third summer, he turned 70. And as a 20, 21, and 22-year-old, I thought he was ancient, and now I don't think he was that old at all. But one of the many things that the boss did to teach us his boys, as he called us, was he modeled a life of Christ-likeness. 
And one of the things that he did right from the beginning is he would gather us up for prayer in surprising places and circumstances. I'll never forget flying into the Denver airport and waiting with other guys as they arrived from all over the country to get picked up by the boss. Here comes the boss late in the afternoon. We're all tired. We'd been wondering when he would arrive. And he gathers us in the airport at baggage claim. And he said, boys, gather around. I want you to form a circle and we're going to pray right now. And we proceeded to have a prayer meeting. And some of us were stunned and surprised because we were ready to go, but we're also stunned and surprised at his boldness and at the things that he prayed for us and for those that were around us in the airport. And I would come to learn that this was no spectacle or show. This was simply the outworking of a man who prayed. Well, later in our training and times and experiences, I can't tell you, how often he would gather us up, no matter what we were doing, and say, guys, boys, it's time to pray. Gather around, and he would always have us form a circle, and he would start to pray, and many times in those prayers, he would stop mid-sentence, and he would say to one of us, he would say, Young, did you read the Bible this morning? What did you read in there? Do you have a word for us? Or he would say to someone else, Smith, Did you get the tracks and are they ready to go this afternoon for when we go to share the gospel? And then he would continue back into his prayer. These prayers that he was praying were just literally conversations with God and conversations with us and they intertwined. And as I read this section of Ephesians chapter three, I can't help but think of the boss and the many times he interrupted his own prayers to ask us, about our walk with the Lord and to provoke us to love and good works as he taught us the scripture and showed us how to live the Christian life. That's exactly what Paul is doing here when he says, for this reason, he is pointing the Ephesian believers to why he has written this letter so far. And then when he resumes his prayer in verse number 14, he's going to pray for them that they would be empowered to live out the doctrine that he has taught them. Well, as Paul writes in chapter three, he is trying to show the Ephesian Christians that God is publicly displaying the gospel through their church. He wants to show them that the, the gospel is in, on display for everyone to see. And this is all according to God's eternal plan that the plan of redemption was worked out from eternity past and was intersecting in their lives then and is intersecting in our lives now. Well, as this gospel message was being displayed through the Ephesian church, it means that according to God's plan, that God had appointed messengers of the gospel. And that's my first point this morning for you to consider, and that is that God appoints messengers of the gospel. As Paul is writing here, he says that he is the prisoner of Jesus Christ for the sake of you Gentiles. He's already identified himself at the beginning of this letter. So here as he is reintroducing himself, he is reminding the Ephesian believers that he is a prisoner of Christ. This is significant because Paul was in fact a prisoner. But you might argue that he was a prisoner of Rome because he was locked up in house arrest under the authority of the Roman Caesar, Nero. 
But Paul does not draw attention to the human authority and say that I'm a prisoner because of that awful Nero. And if you guys could just work to overthrow his administration, then we could get back to doing gospel work. No, Paul says nothing of the sort. Instead, he says he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul identifies himself in Christ because this identity is what gives him hope in his current circumstances. Over in chapter four, verse number one, he says he is a prisoner for the Lord. And therefore he urges them to live a life worthy of the calling that they have received. Being a prisoner was no excuse for Paul to shrink back from his gospel messenger assignment. Instead, being a prisoner was affording him more opportunities to share the gospel. It's a bit of a paradox that on the one hand, he's humanly locked up and unable to leave his home, but on the other hand, God is using Paul's pen and his prayers to advance the gospel to the churches that have been gathered. Think about that for a moment, that as a prisoner, he still had the power of his pen, and he wrote the prison epistles during this time, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And these epistles demonstrate his hope and confidence in the gospel, but also his challenge for the churches to persevere in the gospel. But it wasn't merely through the words that Paul wrote. It was also through the prayers that he offered for the saints. These same epistles record prayer after prayer that Paul intercedes for the believers. And we have one of those at the end of chapter three, which we will look at next week. But the point is, prison could not stop Paul's ministry because Paul had been appointed by God to proclaim the gospel and he would proclaim the gospel at all costs and under all circumstances. So here he is as a prisoner sending a letter that was probably read not only by the Ephesians, but read by other New Testament churches and it was calling the believers to persevere in Christ and to promote the gospel through their churches. In fact, that is the point that here in Ephesians, this group of believers, predominantly Gentiles, is now showing the power of the gospel as they have been gathered under the lordship of Christ. And Paul wants to remind them that he too remains under the lordship of, the, of Christ and that he is a messenger, not only as a prisoner, but he is also a messenger who is an outcast for the Gentiles. He says here in verse number one that he's doing this for the sake of the Gentiles. God called Paul uniquely to be the apostle to the Gentiles. The other apostles certainly preached to Gentiles as well. Look at Acts chapter two. And Paul preached in the Jewish synagogues when he arrived in a town. However, God uniquely used Paul to proclaim the gospel among Gentiles, and God established churches like Ephesus through Paul's ministry. In fact, it was Paul's work among the Gentiles that had enraged the Jewish authorities. How could this Jew of Jews, as he describes himself, lower himself to have close relationships and to offer Christ to these pagan Gentiles, these infidels. The Jewish authorities had threatened Paul's life repeatedly. They had had him beaten. They had tried to stone him to death. They stirred up violent mobs to run him out of town. And now they had even succeeded in having him thrown into jail. Yet despite all their opposition, 
Paul kept preaching Christ. In Romans 15, Paul says this of his ministry. He says, because of the grace that God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, he gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul recognized the special call that God had placed on his life to the Gentiles. He did not cling to his identity as a Jew, and he did not cling to his identity as a religious authority among the Jews, but instead he laid those things down for the benefit of the Gentiles. Because Paul understood that Jesus Christ was available to all people at all times. So he declared the message of the gospel to them. And this messenger of the gospel was a sufferer for the saints of God. Look at verse number 13. This verse 1 and 13 sort of bookend this section. He says, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. As Paul is reminding the Ephesians here of his current conditions, he's also reminding them that his suffering vindicates the gospel. His suffering vindicates the gospel. Think of this, when he says, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you. In fact, it was because of his declaration of the gospel that he was in jail and because of his ministry among people like the Ephesians that he was suffering But then you have to stop and think there would be no Ephesian church without Paul coming and sharing Jesus Christ to those dear believers. And their gathering, it says, for their, which all the suffering is for your glory, is that their gathering is glorifying God. And imagine the comfort that Paul must have sensed as he wrote these words. The people that he had spent over three years with, face to face, ministering life on life. And he is remembering that his suffering is not for vain. It's not because life is meaningless and he is on the short end of the stick. But Paul is suffering so that others may know Jesus. This passage reminds us that God appoints messengers of the gospel. And he has appointed you and I to be those messengers. Though you may not be called to be an apostle to the Gentiles in the same way that the apostle Paul was, you are certainly called to be a messenger to your family and a messenger to your friends and coworkers, a messenger to your fellow students, or a messenger even to acquaintances. Even though messengers may be persecuted, Messengers may be treated as outcasts and may be subject to suffering and misunderstanding. We must take the gospel forward to all that God, all the people God allows us to take it to. God is calling each and every one of us to share the gospel, no matter the challenges and no matter the circumstances. Another lesson that I learned from the boss was bold witness. I've never met anyone who is more of an evangelist than Charles Hampshire. We would be out doing different things and he would talk to everybody about Jesus. And it didn't feel forced. It didn't feel like a sales presentation. It felt like this man has been talking to Jesus and now he's talking to other people that he wants to introduce to Jesus. It was so natural for him because the boss was a man of prayer 
and a man of action surrounding the gospel. This week, I was away at a pastor's conference in Wake Forest at Southeastern Baptist Seminary with the Pillar Network. And it was a great time with 600 of my closest friends, other pastors from the United States and other parts of the world. And as we gathered, we talked about different things that pastors talk about. We also talked about our churches, and we talked about mission opportunities that we had. Mission opportunities to plant more churches here in North America as well as other parts of the world. And it was all exciting, the grand plans and strategies that people were advancing in their churches. And yet, as I was thinking that through, and I thought about how excited we get about visions and strategies and all these things we can do together, I was also reminded that equally God has called us to be ordinary Christians reaching our neighbors with the gospel of Jesus. We celebrate the risks that missionaries take by leaving their home culture and crossing international borders to share Jesus. And yet we somehow underplay the risk that it is to share the gospel with someone here. Because it's still hard to talk of Jesus because we are scared of what other people may think of us. Or we worry what they might ask of us. And then finally we are concerned that they may not believe this message after all. Yet Paul took the risk to bring the gospel to Ephesus. And I want to encourage you to take the risk to share Jesus with whomever God has made you the messenger of the gospel for. Because the simple fact is, I can't tell everyone about Jesus. You can't tell everyone about Jesus. But together, we can tell a lot of people about Jesus. And that is what God is doing through the local church. He's amplifying and multiplying our effort as we publicly display the mystery of the gospel at work among us. Well, all according to God's plan, he appoints messengers of the gospel. But the second thing that I want you to understand this morning is that God reveals the mystery of the gospel. God reveals the mystery of the gospel. Look at verse number two. He says, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. With a bit of irony, Paul says, surely you have heard, knowing that they had heard or they would not be reading this letter. After all, Paul had spent time in their homes and with them on walks and over meals discussing the gospel. So they had certainly heard. And this administration of, the, of God's grace that was given to him was simply that Paul was a steward of the gospel, that he had been appointed as one entrusted with the message of salvation and to share that message with people like those at Ephesus. As we look at the stewardship that Paul was entrusted with, he begins to describe a mystery. He says in verse number three that this, that is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already briefly written. Throughout this section, Paul speaks of the mystery of the gospel. When we think of mystery as Westerners and English speakers, we sometimes think of things like Scooby-Doo and the mystery machine and those darn kids that solved the riddle or the problem. But that's not what this is. It's also not a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma without a key. No, what this mystery is referring to is a truth 
that God had previously concealed but was now revealing to his people. So a mystery here is a truth that God had previously concealed but was now revealing to his people. In Ephesians chapter one, verse number nine, Paul referred to the mystery of God's purpose of gathering all things together under the lordship of Christ. And now here in chapter three, this mystery refers to the inclusion of Gentiles in the blessings of the gospel and the church. Last week, Luke did a fantastic job laying out how God... Jews and Gentiles together in the gospel. These two groups of people that were at odds with one another, that opposed one another, and that despised one another could now come together because of the work of Jesus. That was an incredible mystery, something that the people of Israel would not have seen coming, though there were foreshadows of it in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter three, when God curses Adam and Eve for their sin, he also gives them the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. While not super clear at that time, as scripture unfolds in the progress of revelation, it becomes clear that the seed of the woman was the virgin-born Christ who would crush the serpent, which we find out is Satan. The essence of the gospel was there, but not all the details were explained in that context. The same could be said of Genesis chapter 12 when God gives the covenant to Abraham and Abram is struck with awe that God would, it says, make him a blessing to all nations. How would that work and what would that look like? Abram was just a wanderer at that time who was from Ur of Chaldees, who was following God to the land that he would show him to a people that he would make him out of nothing. So how could that bless all nations? There were hints of the mystery of the gospel throughout the Old Testament. And yet as God revealed himself through time and through his word, it became more and more clear. Another way to think of mystery here is what we may sometimes call mystique or feminine mystique. For all you singles out there, especially the single guys, there are certain girls that just seem to have a mystique about them. And you wonder, ooh, I wonder what she's thinking. I wonder what she would be like to talk to. And there are all kinds of questions that you might have. And then as you get to know that girl, you may find that that mystique was completely mistaken, that that is not the kind of girl that you wanted to get to know. Or you may happily discover that the mystique is better than you could have possibly imagined. As you learn more about her, you're more interested and you want to find out even more. That's essentially what's happening here with the mystery of the gospel, that the mystique is not the same word. The idea is that there is something here of wonder that makes us want to know more. And as we dive in and we discover more, we see that God is infinite in his riches and that the gospel is something that we can continue to grow and search in our whole lives. This mystery that has been made known to Paul has been made known by the very word of God, the word that is received from God the Father. But it's also a mystery that has been revealed by the spirit of God. In verse number four, he says, in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, 
which was not made known to the people in other generations. It has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Paul is pointing to the fact that this mystery has been made known by the work of God's Spirit. He's not condemning the people of previous generations who could not figure out all the implications of God's message. Instead, he is saying it has now been revealed because God has made it known through people like me, an apostle. He's made it known through prophets and he's making it known through people like you, Ephesians, the local church. The mystery of the gospel is something that has been entrusted to the people of God that we would tell people who don't yet know the gospel of God. And the mystery of the gospel is something that we should be passionate about sharing because the mystery of the gospel has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In verse number six, the apostle Paul clearly explains what this mystery is by saying the mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Jesus Christ. The mystery God has made known to Paul and the mystery that Paul is making known to the Ephesians involved the local church. You see, God was now including Gentiles in the new people of God, the church, the people that were once labeled enemies of God and the enemies of Israel were now being redeemed through Jesus Christ and added to God's household. Again, Ephesians chapter two says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For through him, we have both access to the Father by one spirit. And consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Although our human birth determines our family traits, it determines our ethnic distinctions, much more importantly, our new birth unites us as members of the body of Christ, the church. We live in a time of identity politics when everyone wants to separate according to things that they don't have control over, such as their origin and their ethnicity, and things they do have control over, such as items they try to identify themselves with. But Paul is saying what is most important is that there is a mystery that Jew and Gentile have been brought together and that these identities shrink and pale in comparison to the unity that we have in Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the head of the church and every individual member participates in the life of the church. There's no section of Milton Community Church for people of a certain origin, of a particular family, of a distinct ethnicity, or of certain preferences. Instead, we're all one in Christ Jesus. The power of the gospel is that God is gathering together people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation to be his one people. This is incredible, and it gives us the freedom to share the gospel with everyone. God has revealed the mystery of the gospel through the local church. So therefore, when we share the gospel with other people, we shouldn't hold anything back. 
We shouldn't act as though the gospel is secret knowledge or that you have to come into a higher level of understanding before you can witness. Instead, any Christian can talk to everybody about the gospel and we can share with them everything we know about the gospel. Paul told the Ephesians all the truth that he knew. And we also should tell people all the truth that we know. The gospel is not intended for a select few, but it's intended for everyone. So as you go about sharing the gospel, who do you approach to share it with? Do you judge based on their appearance and say, that just doesn't look like the right kind of person? Or do we judge based on opportunity and say, this person looks like someone I would like to be in our church or to be a part of what we're doing. As we think about the gospel, think about how God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Again, I don't want to make Charles Hampshire the hero of my sermon, but I've been thinking about him a lot this week as I was around other pastors and thinking about how he mentored so many of us. There were 50 Bible college students that would come through Neighborhood Bible Time every summer, and he did that for 55 years. So think about the numbers of pastors like me that he impacted. It's amazing to think about. And the boss was not all that discriminating sometimes in who he chose. I was the leader of Bible Time on my college campus. That meant I helped coordinate some meetings, some training, and recruiting future Bible Time evangelists. And I'll never forget one fall when we were meeting with the Bible time guys and I was leading the meeting. And before we got started, I was talking to a couple guys and we were talking about one of our fellow Bible majors who was not a Bible time evangelist. And I remember saying, boy, I hope he never becomes a Bible time evangelist because that individual was abrasive, obnoxious, and not well-liked by other Bible majors, including myself. Well, guess what? The boss chose him to be an evangelist. And what's even more, he made him my partner. So we traveled together one-on-one for 10 straight weeks. God used that whole situation to remind me the gospel is more powerful than our personality. And through my brother, who I once found obnoxious and abrasive and frustrating, I learned to see the beauty of Christ. The point in that is simple. We underestimate what God is doing in others and overestimate what he may be doing in ourselves. Instead, let's trust the power of the gospel and the mystery of the gospel to be displayed in the beauty and the diversity of the church that is unified in Jesus and his message. Well, as the church publicly displays the gospel, all according to God's plan, he appoints messengers and reveals the mystery. And the third point that I want you to see this morning is that God advances the ministry of the gospel. God advances the ministry of the gospel. You see, if it were left to us, we would at times be paralyzed to take this message forward because we're simply incapable. We lose motivation or we lose interest And yet God empowers the gospel's movement. God empowers the gospel's movement. Look at verse number seven. Paul says, I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. 
Paul is one who is following the leadership of God to declare the grace of God according to the power of God. The ministry of the gospel depends solely on God's power. Notice how Paul emphasizes his position here as a servant. He's already said that he's a prisoner. Now he says that he is a servant who has received the gift of God's grace according to God's power. Paul understood that the source and the authority of the gospel was God. It was not Paul and it was not his apostleship. It was God himself. Paul had trusted God to work through him and God had built up the gospel in the Ephesians. Only a prisoner empowered by God could demonstrate such confidence. After all, Paul rejoiced in his suffering because suffering had served to advance the gospel and the Ephesians puzzled over Paul's imprisonment. Wouldn't the apostle have been far more effective as a free person who could travel and could stay with his friends and meet new people that needed the gospel? Yet Paul understood God's power and he trusted himself to it. Notice Paul did not become a fatalist and throw up his hands and say, I'm in prison, I guess I'm out. No, remember at the beginning I said he's still writing letters and he's still praying, interceding for the saints and he's still working to strengthen the church. All of this is because Paul depended on the power of God. Paul also knew that the ministry would be declared by sinners like himself. God would advance the ministry of the gospel through sinners who share the gospel. Verse eight, although I'm less than least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. If you follow the life of Paul in the New Testament, you find a man who was once identified as a religious elite, someone who had identified of being the Jew of Jews, someone who had trained and prepared his life to be a leader among the Jews. And yet once God gloriously converted him on the Damascus road and opened his eyes to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, Paul would go to describe his ministry as the least of the apostles. That is, of those men who had been appointed by God to lead in the proclamation of the early church, Paul said, I'm not even worthy to be accounted among their number. I'm the least of them. But here we are in Ephesians about seven years later, and Paul says on further reflection, further opportunities to share the power of the gospel I now realize that I am the least of all the believers. Paul is not increasing in his view of himself. Instead, he's decreasing in his view of himself. He's coming to see his sin more clearly and his need for salvation more clearly. Later, toward the end of his life, Paul writes to Timothy that he is the worst sinner of all. Again, Paul's view of himself continues to go down while his view of Christ continues to soar higher and higher. Because Paul understood that the gospel would be carried forth by sinners. It was the boundless riches of Christ that he declared, not the power of his personality or the persuasiveness of his argument, but it was in the riches of of Jesus. And what was this? Verse number nine, to make plain to everyone the administration of this ministry, mystery, which was for ages past kept hidden in God who created all things. 
Paul had one simple assignment, and that was to tell people about the mystery of the gospel. To make it plain, he says, to make it clear and understandable. He didn't require that someone had to learn the original biblical languages, though he spoke Greek, which is what the New Testament's in. He didn't require them to speak Hebrew, though he would have perhaps been trained that way. But instead, he makes plain the mystery by explaining Christ and making the connection that previous generations had not seen, the connection that Christ fulfilled all the promises that God had made to redeem his people. As God did this, Paul boldly carried the gospel because he knew that he was a broken jar of clay. When we go to share the gospel, we don't have to be perfect Christians. We don't have to be powerful apologists. And we don't have to be professor theologians. We simply have to be sinners who know our need of the Savior and tell other sinners of their need of the Savior. And as we do that, we can make it plain in our own words according to Scripture. And when all else fails, we can simply draw people back to Scripture and watch God do incredible things as he continues to advance the mystery of the gospel through the church. In fact, the ministry is revealed through the church. Look at verse number 10. It says, God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Last week, Luke in his sermon said that the gospel is inherently corporate, that the Christian life is not meant to be done alone. And instead of thinking me, we should think we. And I say, amen, Luke. That was a fantastic exposition of Ephesians 2. And he made the point so clearly that this is a point of the church and how the gospel is drawing us together as God's people. Belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ should inevitably lead to a commitment to the local church. If someone claims to follow Jesus Christ, but they do not affiliate with the church, then they do not understand the gospel. And we should challenge them on that. The local church publicly displays the mystery of the gospel for everyone to see. Think of it. The gospel brings together different kinds of people to show one kind of God. And that is he brings broken sinners who are a mess to show his wholeness and his beauty. And this is demonstrated in Jesus, all according, he says here in verse number 11, to the eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus. The gospel is not merely about me, but the gospel is about the local church. This is one of the things that disturbed the Jewish people that were opposing Paul because they wanted to stop this man from bringing so many Gentiles into the synagogues and bringing so many Gentiles around the teachings of the Old Testament and then the teachings of Christ. And yet Paul continued to do it fearlessly because he recognized that God was at work and that God could be approached freely and confidently, it says here in the passage. As God advances the ministry of the gospel through the local church, it requires all of us to do the work of an evangelist. Individual Christians are far more likely 
to speak the gospel when they are working together in the church, in a, in a church that is committed to proclaiming Christ. Tom Rayner, who is a Southern Baptist researcher and has served as a pastor, a seminary professor, he's a podcaster and so many other things, estimates that it takes about 20 church members for every one new convert. Think about that for a moment. That's sobering. When I was in seminary, Rayner was writing the same kind of research, and he said at that time it took 11 church members for one convert. Now he's saying it takes a little over 20 church members to reach one convert. He's not suggesting in that research that 20 people huddle around one unrepentant sinner and forcibly try to convert them. But what he's saying is, just given the nature of church and how things are declining in the United States, that it's taking more and more church people to reach the lost. Brothers and sisters, evangelism is a team sport. It's something that we do together and that we encourage each other to continue doing. And then we trust as God works miraculously to save people. That's why he says in verse number 10, it was, or his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. What is this saying? It's saying that the plan of God confounds even the angels, but the plan of God brings glory to himself through his son, Jesus, and it was all accomplished in Jesus. So church, let's be the kind of covenant people that share the gospel, that proclaim the mysteries of Christ, not as a riddle to be solved or a puzzle to figure out, but the mystery of Christ that he would save sinners like us and bring us together in his church. And would Milton Community Church be the kind of congregation that publicly displays the mystery of the gospel as we persevere in faith? I've mentioned Charles Holmshire throughout this sermon, and he is now with Jesus. And I look forward to a heavenly reunion one day. But Brother Holmshire, through his ministry to young men like me, helped see the public display of the mystery of the gospel in local churches around the world. And that fruit continues today. And each of us get to be a part of that today as we have occasion and opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to our neighbors, to our friends, to our families, our coworkers, fellow students, and to anyone that God may put a prompting of his spirit on our heart and mind to share Christ with. So are you willing to do it? Are you willing to become a servant of the gospel, even a prisoner of Christ, so that the mystery of the gospel might be displayed? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we're mindful of our weakness and we're mindful of our powerlessness. In fact, as we think about this passage, on one hand, we're incredibly encouraged that you would call people like us to be your sons and daughters and gather us to be your church. And God, we feel blessed by that. We even feel at times relieved by that, knowing the weight of our own sin. And yet, God, we also have to confess that here we are in 21st century America, and we also struggle with complacency over the gospel. It's tempting just to say, yeah, I've heard that all before. 
It's tempting to say, yeah, I think the churches that I know are in decline and I don't see the power of the gospel advancing. I don't see the power of the gospel gathering more. And God, if we're not careful, our complacency can become indifference, which can become disobedience. And God, I pray this morning that you would help us to be the kind of people that freely share the gospel, that talk often of Jesus, not because it's a sales pitch that we're trying to win friends and influence people, but that we would speak of Jesus because we know Jesus and that we have a relationship with Jesus and we have a relationship with God's people through the church. And God, make us a compelling community of believers that would attract others around the gospel message because of our hope and confidence in Jesus and our willingness to speak of Jesus. And God, as you would see fit, I pray that you would bless our gospel conversations by granting repentance and faith to our friends and our family members and those people that are near to us that we've shared with so many times before that it's tempting to lose hope. And yet, God, give us a new hope and give us a new earnestness to speak of Jesus. And would you see in your infinite mercy and grace, would you see fit to grant them the eyes and ears of faith? So God, we pray this because we want the gospel to be publicly displayed in Milton and beyond through our collective witness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.